Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Topic today is when there are no words, and our guest today is Charlie Walton. Charlie started out to be a school teacher, but only spent two years in the classroom before getting sidetracked into an exciting 35-year career as a freelance writer, providing training materials in video and print for AT&T, Bell South, Chick-fil-A, Coca-Cola, Days Inns, Delta Airlines, Disney World, DuPont, Georgia Power, IBM, Kimberly Clark, Kroger, Texas Instruments, USA Today, and many colleges and universities. Wow, Charlie, that's a lot. That's great. Um, Charlie has written many books, six of which are under his own name. Two of his books, When There Are No Words and Packing for the Big Trip, resulted from the sudden accidental death in 1986 of Tim and Ron, two of the Walton's three sons. These books have been widely used. I, that's Don. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I, I changed it right before the show, and I forgot to change it. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. It's done. Okay, let me read that again, because I think that's important. Uh, for sure. Yes. Charlie lost two of his sons, and their names are Tim and Don, two of the Walton's three sons, and Rick is his son that is still living. Um, these books have been widely used to help those who are struggling through the grief of a life trauma. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you from Atlanta. Beautiful area. It really is. So we're going to get a southern accent with some southern calm, right? (laughs) Hopefully so. (laughs) It's great to have you on the show. Could you tell us uh, for our audience, you know, I've told... um, I think I emailed you the fact that we, I really look at the show as being for people who are fairly newly bereaved, maybe in the past couple of years, and uh, the message is really that uh, others have been there before you and made it, and we've been there, and uh, we know that you can make it too. Could you tell us in that vein and thought, share a little bit about about the boys and what happened and, and the circumstances around it for us? Sure, glad to do that. Uh, you know, uh I really didn't intend to write this book. Uh, people uh, said right after the boys died, I guess since you're a writer, you'll uh, you'll write this. It'll probably be cathartic for you and help other people. And I said, well, I really think that, that the, the tribute I could give these two guys is just not to turn their death into a writing assignment. Mm-hmm. But after, you know, four or five years, uh, Kay and I began to realize that uh, when we would go to try to be encouraging to people who had had losses, that the things we were saying out of our experience uh, were actually helping a little bit. Uh, and so I began to think, well, maybe I'll I'll put this in a form that it can travel a lot farther than I can. Now, where were you when you were um, uh, telling people about it? Were you involved with the Compassionate Friends? or Yeah, um, that's um, uh, uh uh, we go to a church that has had an unusually large number of uh, deaths of children, mm-hmm. uh, some some adult children, but also uh, young children. And uh, so, and as a result of that, that particular church family had uh, proved to be a, a real encouragement in our difficult time. Uh, they, they kind of 
know how to do that since they've done it more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I tried to write a book that would be for the people who are in that first week or month of, of uh, numbing grief. Uh, it, it's the book, it's the conversation I wish that somebody had come and had with me. Mm-hmm. People gave us a lot of uh, books to read, and of course it's, it's uh, strange because in that early time period, you can hardly focus your eyes, much less your mind. Right. And so, uh, and a lot of those books they gave us were, I don't know, they were sort of, uh, uh, sort of therapy uh, platitudes about God needing another little angel and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or else, on the other extreme, they were very textbooky about stages of grief and all of that. And mm-hmm seemed to me that a lot of those books would say, uh, what has happened to you is terrible, but it's going to be all right. And I didn't want to hear that at that point. Mm-hmm. You wanted to survive, eh? Well, I, I, I just, yeah, just wanted to survive it. Um, so I tried to write the book that says, what's happened to you is terrible, and not get into the, it's going to be all right. Part, right. Because that does happen. You, it does get all right. You do survive it and... and you do live again, but uh, at the, in those earliest uh, days, you just don't want to hear that if everything's going to be all right stuff. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, the boys now. Were they both, uh, now you have th- uh, three boys, three and uh, was Rick home? Rick was uh, engaged and living in uh, his own apartment okay. nearby. Mm-hmm. So he, And he was three years old. They're all, all three, three years old. apart, right? Uh, that's right. He was uh, probably 24. Uh, Tim was 22, and Don was 19. Uh-huh. Tim was uh, seemed to be making a career out of changing colleges, and he was at that point <laughs> living at home and uh, uh, doing some part-time jobs and saying he was headed back to college. Uh-huh. Uh, Don had been uh, had just graduated from high school and had gone with some friends of ours, medical missionaries, down to Honduras. He'd been working down there, uh, been to language school and been working down there, and then was home for sort of a Christmas furlough, and that's when uh, the, the two of them died, along with uh, Brian, who was the son of uh, some of our longtime friends from college, and uh, that uh, that really complicated. I mean, it's it's hard to lose your kids, but it's multiplied when, uh, you know, he was Don's 17-year friend. Right. <laughs> they they had met when they were two years old mm-hmm. and been friends for 17 years. So they were all three in the car together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a sort of a not an unfamiliar scenario. It was just uh, they were in an old car with a bad muffler on a cold winter night and... Uh, that carbon monoxide takes, they now tell me, it takes about 14 or 15 minutes to mm-hmm. take your life. Wow. So they were parked somewhere. Yeah, they were parked listening to their favorite music. And uh, uh, they were, uh, uh, Tim and Don, uh, the test showed later, were taking whiffs of uh, Freon, the dust-off kind of thing that you use to get the dust off your computer screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is uh, not a very uh, not very much of a high, but uh, 
it's uh, it's legal and it's cheap. Right. But uh, they they took a whiff of that and kind of settled back in their seats, evidently, to uh, listen to their music. Uh, we know that Brian had they had stopped here at the house not long before that to get aspirin for Brian because he had a headache. So, and he was he was Mr. Clean and never never even tried stuff like that. And so he was in the back seat, probably laid his head back to get over that headache and. Oh, it's, it was probably um, uh, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. A, a county uh, policeman making his rounds uh, saw this car parked and thought these boys had evidently gone to sleep, which mm-hmm. <laughs> I suppose is what happened. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> so, uh, what a shocker. Wow. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Incredible. It's the same shock. It's It's interesting to me that no matter how a child dies, there is the shock. You know, Absolutely. We've, Kay and I have had lots of people tell us, people who have lost children to lengthy illnesses will say, you know, I just don't think I could have could have handled uh, that sudden shock. And our response is usually, uh, well, you know, we're not sure we could have handled the marathon of cancer treatment or yeah, absolutely. the things that other people go through. So. You know, no matter how it occurs, uh, that shock is just, it's inevitable. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, when Scott was killed, his cousin was driving and the car blew up and they burned to death. So, oh, my. Yeah, so we had the the situation that you had, too, where we had a person in the car that was not actually in our house, in our bed. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, for you to have uh, two empty bedrooms is... Yeah, that's what know. we were really struck by. I mean, we were struck with the whole story because losing... Kids is always hard, but to to lose two children at the same time. Yeah, uh, people also say that you know it must be they, they're sort of fumbling around to figure out. They say it's, that must be twice as bad. Well, it's not. No, know? it's just just you know the loss is however big that's you right. can experience. You're, you're, you can only take in so much. I know. I mean, a lady it just who, goes. Who yeah. lost four of her sons on a mm-hmm. on a fishing uh, boat, and uh, you know. That loss is the same size as the person who lost one. Yeah. And, you know, uh, my experience, I, I uh, happen to have a nursing background, too, is that even with terminal illness, people really always have hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the moment when they say, I'm sorry, your child is gone, is a shocker. Sure. Yeah, you can't believe it. That's right. Yeah. Because, you, you know. You think they're going to live. And you've also spent your life, you know, a lot of life taking care of them and all that kind of thing. So it, it's always difficult. Well, it's time for us to go to break right now. And um, I want to um, please give our toll-free number if anyone would like to call in, 1-866-472-5792 with questions or comments regarding the losses in your life. You can email me through, email Heidi or I through our website, healingthegrievingheart.org. And remember, these shows are archived. Today our guest on the show is Charlie Walton. Charlie Walton uh, has written many books, and two of them are When There Are No Words and Packing for the Big Trip. And um, he wrote these books as a result of the sudden accidental death in 1986 of his two sons, Tim and Don, and their friend Brian. Um, uh, these books have been used by many people who are struggling through the grief of life trauma. We're kind of asking Heidi to represent the sibling contingent today. Right. And, um, yeah, I was sorry Rick couldn't come, even though I completely understand as a sibling um, not wanting to come on. And 
I guess as one of the questions I have is, you know, I am the oldest as well. Mm-hmm. I have brown eyes as well, so I kind of was identifying with Rick a little bit. <laughs> and I lost my one of my younger bro- my younger brother as well. Mm-hmm. But Rick lost both his brothers, and in one second became an only child. I mean, I know he'll always have his brothers, but he won't have them here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just can't imagine that from a sibling perspective. And I wondered what that was like for him. Well, uh, as you know from being the sibling, uh, they are the great overlooked group. Right, absolutely. You know, the people come to the house, they knock on the front door, the, the son or daughter opens the door, and the people say, how's your mom and dad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't say, how are you? They, they, the sibling is often the invisible one. Rick did a great job of dealing with it. He He had a... A really tough year that year. Uh, he broke up with his fiance, he lost his job, uh, and broke his arm in two places. So, which I was saying on break, breaking it in two places, I think, is pretty symbolic. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's true. Given uh, that he's lost both his brothers, I don't know. But uh, he also, uh, I think, partly as a result of that, decided to uh, to go to college. He had uh, gotten out of high school and said, "I don't want to see the inside of any more classrooms." Mm-hmm. Uh, but he uh, he decided to go back to college, and uh, he majored in fine arts photography, which turned out to be just a perfect uh, therapy kind of uh, study. I think uh, some of the projects that he did. Uh, uh, utilized uh, uh, old family pictures and slides that we had taken through the years and just were... Oh, how lovely. What a wonderful remembrance. Yeah. Yeah, he just did He did some beautiful work uh, and some writing uh, to go with those pictures. One of his, his lines, uh, he he did a, several panels where he showed Tim and he showed Don and talked about their characteristics, but at the end of it, he said, uh, he used the words, I am confident of our reunion. Wow. And I thought, wow, what neat words. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, in the process of uh, a lot of those projects, I think he did uh, he did some real uh, grief work. Mm-hmm. And then the other great thing that happened was he met uh, a wonderful girl that uh, he's now married to and... Uh, uh, they're very happy together. Now, I was curious, was he angry at all after, and how did he find out? I, You know, I, I don't know. I'm not a brief sibling, and Heidi can probably talk to this. Is there some anger that your sibling screwed up and your wife's a little screwed up because this shouldn't happen to you? I, I wasn't aware of it if he was. Now, that, you know, it may have been the case. Uh, I know that uh, he he had some things to deal with because, uh, as you might know, when you have two children, they get along fine. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. You have three, then then. I don't even think two get along fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that, Mom. I think there's a sibling rivalry. <laughs> well, we found that when we went from two to three, that various twos of them would They'd hang up, up on the other one. Yeah, well, that's true. That's and true, yeah. uh, and I think at the time that uh, that the boys died, uh, that. Uh, that Rick and Don were sort of ganged up on the middle kid, as Tim liked to introduce himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think Rick had uh, to work through some of that uh, guilt for, you know, not being uh, as good of friends with Tim uh, at that time uh, as he might have been. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, as I say, a lot of his uh, college work helped him uh, uh, work through that. Well, yeah, and okay. I think that's true. You do. You have. You have relationships with siblings where you fight, and you you know when you love someone, you 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 will argue with them and fight with them, and it's normal. And then when they die suddenly, sometimes you can't work through these things. That's right. And they're you know you can't. You've got unfinished business. What's interesting about Rick's story is I have some similarities in my own story. I also was not in college when my brother died. And his death caused me, I was 20 at the time, it caused me to really examine my life and kind of put me in an existential place and say, okay, what do I want to do with my life? Life ends, and I need to make the most of the time I'm on this earth. And, uh, you know, from there and from this journey, I decided to go back to college and, you know, kind of make something of my life, but um, it yeah, puts you in I, a different place. You grow up quickly when you have a sibling die. I tell people that uh, one of the uh, the unrecognized gifts that a person who who leaves you, who dies, uh, gives to you, is um, sort of a sudden correct perspective on life. Mm-hmm. You sort of you you suddenly get real clear on what's permanent and what's temporary. And and uh, what the your values are in life, uh, I, I've heard many uh, grieving persons say that uh, they never leave their spouse or their kids now without saying "I love you." They don't want mm-hmm. they don't want that occasion to arise when uh, they uh, they miss that chance. Mm-hmm. So I always, you know, people talk on the show about there was then and, and then there's now. Yeah. Heidi, uh, could, as a sibling, I wonder if you could talk a little bit maybe with Charlie about how you felt like you had to take care of your parents. I Absolutely. In fact, I was thinking of that, Mom, when Charlie was saying that everyone that came to the door was there for the parents. When you do get messages, oftentimes the messages are you need to be strong for your parents. Yeah. I mean, Rick was now an only child. I'm the oldest. All siblings get these messages, but I got them loud and clear. I, I really did take on that role. I hid a lot of my feelings from my parents because I knew they had already been through so much, mm-hmm. and I grieved pretty much on my own. And I didn't show them what I was going through because they had been through so much pain and suffering already. And I, I did a lot of things I probably wouldn't have done if my sibling hadn't died. Like I remember after Scott died, I found his – it was important for me to tell people, and I found one of his – um phone books and I went and called everybody I could imagine to tell them he had died because I didn't want my parents to have to do that. Mm. Um, you know, I would do these these things kind of not even telling them to try to take care of them in a way and help mm-hmm. them through this grief. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the roles that we take and we do get messages, like I said, from, from people. You know, I, I got permission one time to... Uh sit in on the siblings group at a compassionate friends meeting and mm-hmm. uh they normally don't don't let the uh, adults in there except for right. the group leader <laughs> i know because i run those charlie and i definitely have a sign up there that says parents are not allowed <laughs> well, <laughs> my father tried to send it on, on one of mine i, I said dad uh, goodbye <laughs> i was uh, i was working on this book <clears throat> and i got permission to sit in and i was Overwhelmed by the uh, there's a whole different language and and communication style that occurs with the siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I would characterize it by saying that there there is a lot uh, less c- 
concern about calling things like they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, The adult groups, uh, people are often very uh, careful about how they describe things and say things, and they don't want to offend people, and they do all those games that adults play. Right, right. But those those siblings just laid it on the line with each other about their kids, you know, and if they if they weren't if they weren't happy with that sibling at the time they died, they just said so. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a, an extremely healthy uh, kind of uh, exchange. I agree with you. Just to be honest and upfront and truthful about what your experience has been. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, uh, I, when I sit and think about what helps people most to get through any kind of grief, I think the, the word you just used, honesty, Mm-hmm. Is the thing uh, people people uh, get stuck in grief because they are so concerned about what other people might be thinking that they ought to be doing <laughs> at a certain time. And I, one of the things I did in that book, uh, probably the most valuable thing I did, was to try to communicate to folks that the way you are grieving is the way you need to grieve. You know, you are the world's expert on how you need to grieve. Quit thinking that uh, uh, people must be thinking right about now that you ought to be doing such and such. And you're not going crazy. You may be crazy, but you're not going crazy. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Most of what you're going through is is normal, given the situation you've been through. Crazy is normal. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just at this uh, chapter leader training, and uh, I met a couple of women from Utah, and I went up to one and said that I was from Utah originally, and she said, well, good for you, and she was very hostile. Now, in most groups, I would have said, okay, I would have written her off. So, of course, I went over and had lunch with her and started talking to her about her uh, daughter's death and all that kind of thing, and uh, Mm -hmm. she'd been in therapy, and the therapist was trying to work with her and uh been two years, and she felt, the therapist felt that she was going to be okay, even though she was kind of crazy, basically. And I said, you're normal. That's right. Go back and tell your therapist I said you're normal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the best things that happens in those uh, uh, compassionate friends meetings and those sharing groups. The, the, the new person, the first-timer arrives, sits in that circle and says, I think I'm going nuts. Right. And and every head around the circle is nodding yes. You know? Absolutely. And then they're all saying, you're not, but it's normal to feel like you are. When we started the show, I suggested that I had gotten some interesting questions from uh, the Compassionate Friends Chapter Leader Training Program that I thought we might all kind of kick around a little bit here. And I'm going to uh, read one of them, and feel free to jump in, Heidi or Charlie, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the first one they ask is, how um, have you changed or what have you learned in your personal life since your loss? Hmm. Well, as I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think that uh, when any person is torn away from your life, uh, the suddenness of that loss gives you sudden appreciation for uh, the fragility of life, uh, mm-hmm. The, uh, you suddenly realize what you've known all along, that the death rate on your street is 100%. It's just a matter of when. And so you start changing uh, things. We we had kind of learned that lesson earlier because I had a couple of friends uh, who died uh, young. And, uh, you know, way back there when uh, there were five of us in the family, one year we 
scraped together the savings and took all five of us to Europe and, and uh, sort of bummed around for five weeks and wow. wrote a book called it Europe Without Reservations. And uh, That's fun. It was a great trip, but, you know, we had all kinds of questions when we did that. Maybe we should wait till later. Maybe the kids are not old enough to appreciate this. But we went ahead and did that, and, uh, of course, later on, that cast of characters could not be reassembled. So, mm-hmm. you know, we uh, one of the things I do when I talk to groups is, uh, is talk about this uh, uh, making sure that you don't live with unfinished business. And uh, I like the saying, you know, eat, eat the dessert first, life is short. <laughs> I like that. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think maybe that's one of the biggest things we learn, isn't it? Eat the dessert first. Right. That's, yeah, that's really and the, we give ourselves permission to do it, and I hope everybody out there is doing that. Sure. That's really the focus of that second book, Packing for the Big Trip, and it's the book I wish everybody could read before they have some sort of a grief uh, enter their lives. By the way, I love the title of that, mm-hmm. Packing well, for the Big Trip. <laughs> and the big trip, I assume, is death because I have not read that one. Well, it's an analogy to the fact that one of my favorite times in life is when you're getting ready to go on a long trip and you've you've canceled the newspaper, you've gotten everything taken care of, you've paid all the bills. You go to the airport and you you're there and and uh, everything is ready, you know. And it I kind of think that's the goal that we all ought to strive for in our daily lives, so that we are packed for the big trip. We've got stuff done. We haven't. We don't have a, a relative that we still need to reconcile with. We, uh, we, and and that gets into holding on to that anger um, and not exactly. reconciling a past loss because then you can't. It's hard to live now. But you know, we got these people in their first and second year. Let me say one thing to all of you out there. We all know, all of us on the phone right now know that you might not have the energy to resolve a lot of things that you will later on. Wouldn't you say, Charlie? That's right. And and we're giving you some of our advice and some of our thoughts are for later on and some of them are for now. And we know for some of you are just trying to survive it now. We remember those days, Mm -hmm. those 45-minute showers, (laughs) (laughs) not being able to get your shoes on. So... um, Let's. Let's. Uh, what did you worry about? Do you remember what you worried about? I know you said uh, that you were you worried about what other people thought. What did you worry about in those first two years? Do you remember Heidi as a sister? I worried about the fact that someone else in the family was going to die. Absolutely. Ah, Every yes. time the phone rang, especially in the middle of the night, because that's when I found out my brother had been killed and my cousin, I automatically assumed somebody has died, and that's why they're calling. That's right. Yeah, I had that same experience. Uh, one. One of the worst times I ever had was the first time Kay was late getting home. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just sat there uh, uh, living through my life without her. You know, I yeah. just, I just, and all that had happened was she just forgot to call. She was going to do something else and, and didn't get around to calling. And by the time she walked in, I was just a basket case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you it's know, amazing where your mind can take you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pr- prior to uh, a life trauma like that, you... You assume that all this stuff you hear on the news happens to other people. And when it does happen to you, then you figure it's going to happen to you time after time. Right. So like uh, like Heidi says, you know, every time the phone rings, it scares you. Right. It scares you pretty bad. 
Okay. What do you remember then? What did you feel angry about? Do you remember? Uh, how do you want to take that angry? one? Angry? Oh, yeah. I was really angry. I was angry that my brother had abandoned me. I was angry that my life was not supposed to be like this. Um, like Charlie said, this happens to other people. I was angry at God because I felt like if God was the merciful person that he is, he wouldn't have allowed two healthy young boys to die suddenly. Um, I was just angry at the way my life looked. I was mad as hell at living with two bereaved parents. <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, <laughs> I was I was angry. I was angry at everything, and I had to get a hold of that anger. That anger, I had to let go of it gradually. But initially, I was not able to. So. I think that the being mad at God is a bigger factor than gets talked about very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a chapter in When There Are No Words about that. Uh, because Kay and I had very different experiences there. I, I didn't feel like like God had caused this or even allowed it to happen. I just felt like those boys broke the law of carbon monoxide, and if you do that, you're going to die. Uh, but Kay, on the other hand, had not realized until this happened that she, like a lot of us, had made the assumption that if you're trying to be as good as you can and do what God says and and all that, that you ought to be getting a little special protection, you know, right, right. a little a little uh, extra uh, treatment. And uh, so she had to work through that a little bit. And uh, I thought it. I, I think that has been helpful to us in talking to other people in years since, because depending on the size of the God influence in your life, uh, that's about how big also is going to be the anger with God. Uh-huh. You know, if, if he's been a major player in your philosophy and your thinking, then uh, you're going to have to deal with the fact that uh, uh, he either uh, causes this to happen, let it happen, or has some reason for it to happen and all of that, and, and that's a deep well. Yep. I remember what I was angry at. I I was working at the time at the University of Rochester, and I was actually a therapist in practice, and I was really angry that people wouldn't let me be confident, that they wouldn't leave me alone. I was trying to be confident, Mm -hmm. that people were trying to talk to me and be supportive, but it made me feel unsupported because I felt like I wanted to cry at work. And, you know, I just got so angry with the the whole situation. You know, it was... Very, you know, frustrating trying to be confident when I really wasn't. But you know, it was uh, yeah. you were trying to keep it all together. But they kept bringing back, "How are you really doing?" But of course, then I wanted them to because you right. know you want people to it's, talk about it. I but know, it's yeah, a fine line. I know it's well, a, I, very I difficult. I found that that people uh, when I would go into business meetings and at different different uh, organizations that people were trying to coddle me, and that that yeah. wasn't working. They were being so careful. They were afraid that. Uh, at any moment, I was going to shatter into a thousand pieces, and I found that the the best way to deal with that, uh, be in a conference room and we we're all talking. Uh, my both my kids that died, well, and the one who's still living, were were real comedians and and had a lot of funny sayings and all. Yeah, you and, said Tim was a real comedian, uh, right? Oh yeah, yeah, they they all were, uh, but uh, I would. I would pretty quickly find some some of their quotes that would apply, and I'd say, "Well, you know, as Don used to tell me, such and such and such," and and that would kind of break the ice for everybody. They'd say, "Wow, 
Yeah. You mentioned the name of the kid that died, and he didn't fall apart. Right. Looks like we can go on with this meeting here. So that was that was a helpful uh, way right. of dealing with that. You were away at college, Heidi. What did you find? Well, one thing that I was I probably the most angry at, which I didn't even think about until you both started talking, um, is how unacknowledged I felt and how misunderstood sibling loss is and how I felt like no one understood what I was going through because no one I knew had ever had a sibling die. So I felt very much alone and very unacknowledged and overlooked. And I guess that was that was probably the thing that made me the angriest. And being away made it that much worse because nobody knew Scott where I was, you know, in college. Nobody knew him, and so nobody understood why I was still grieving after several weeks and why I wasn't over it. They didn't understand sibling loss. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. So, again, the idea that we, uh, you know, Heidi and I um, work with siblings a bit, and one of the things we find is that they want people to talk about it, but they don't want them to. There's a huge ambivalence, and maybe it's with all of us. There's a huge ambivalence. We want to be supported, but we want to be seen as competent. You know, as Heidi said, it's a fine line. I was just going to ask about guilt, uh, because what I've found in talking to people through the years is that uh, I think the chapter in When There Are No Words is called Inevitable Guilt because I have not yet met a person who's lost somebody who hasn't dealt with guilt. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you uh, and my best explanation of that is you really want to hurt somebody and you're the most convenient person around. So you start in with, um, if I hadn't let them leave when they did, you know, if, or if I had, uh, in my case, if I had only fixed that muffler on that car, of course, Tim was 22 years old, and I, he and I had talked about that thing. I said, "You got to get it fixed." He said, "I'm going to do it as soon as I get a check from my next from my job." And uh, you know, I was, uh, I guess, if I were parenting in that situation again, I'd do the same thing. I'd say, I love that you said yes. that. But go ahead. Yes. This kid was. I, I agree, he, Mom. He I was going to go fix his own muffler. You know. Yeah, I loved in the book that you said, "If I had it to do over again, I probably would have done the same thing." I mean, absolutely. You know, I think there are one of the things that our audience has to remember is that you have to, we did the best we could at the time. Right. I mean, we did what we thought was right. We did the best we could. We were, you know, there are other life circumstances. Sometimes our eye isn't focused on a, on a certain thing. I saw James Baker was on uh, Larry King, uh, last night and my husband and I were listening to it. His, uh, grandson was killed in a, uh, drowned in a hot tub. And he was, you know, bringing in a lawsuit, which, you know, I have no thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. But what I did have a thought about was somebody called in, a woman called in and actually said, what about parental responsibility here? Uh-huh. And I, you know, and why wasn't there a gate around that hot tub and all that? Well, I think part of what Guild is is wanting to think that we can control the world. Yeah. And it's tra- how could it have been different? How could I have been in control of that? Mm-hmm. And you know what? We just can't control everything. Mm-hmm. No, Life true. happens. Right. You can't always be at your children's side 24 hours a day. And, you know, siblings have survivor guilt, too. I wanted to speak to this. It's different, though. What we're guilty about, in my case, I was guilty that, ha- that I lived in, and the only boy in our family died. Yeah. It's survivor guilt. Maybe the wrong child died. You feel it should have been you, you feel, or you feel like it should have been one of your siblings. Right. That, the, the survivor guilt often goes through your head. So mm-hmm. we do have guilt as well. Or maybe you should have been with them, too. Right. Well, that's true. We should have been with them. We could have prevented it somehow if we had been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, listen, uh, Charlie, it has been so great to have you on the show today. Well, it has, Charlie. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's been really uh, wonderful. And I asked you if you would read something to close the show. Did you get that? I did. Oh, good. Would you read that for us? This is from Charlie's book, When There Are No Words. Now, when I go to comfort a friend, having had the experience of being the bereaved one, I know there are no words. Actually, no words are necessary. Everything that needs to be said is communicated in the presence, the look, the touch, and the shared silence. If I am sorry, they are going to know it. If I'm something greater than sorry, something for which our language has no terminology, the message will be clearly communicated. The only thing I know to say is that I don't know what to say, and that goes without saying. In the weeks and months that follow, there will be time for words but at the moment of separation, there really are no words. Oh, thank you, Charlie. That is such a beautiful ending to the show. It is. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for being on. Thank you. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.